I like this look on you. Yeah, it's uh, <laughs> the green really brings out the color of your eyes. If I can the green imagine. really brings out the color of the red in the other <laughs> color box, <laughs> the, the magenta, the cyan. Yeah, you're mm-hmm. looking very Christmassy over there, and yeah. also very Eastery. And also, what's another holiday that has colors attached to it? St. Patrick's Day? This is what the the drone had on the screen. You guys watched that video of the drone getting (laughs) shot down? And it was just color bars at the end? (laughs) No. That's cool. Send it later. Yeah. In the group chat. Hell yeah. I can't wait to look at that. Um, before we get too far into the weeds and do a cold open that leads us completely astray, uh, I just want to <laughs> welcome everybody to this episode of BP Bledis. We have all four of the normal hosts here, and we're also very, very excited to welcome Bill Peel to the show. Thank you so much for joining us, Bill, to come on and talk about your book. Thanks for having me. Of course. Absolutely. Hi, Bill. Hello. Welcome. Howdy. I'm so glad that we could line this up, considering you're half a world away. It's Saturday morning for you right now, right? <laughs> yeah, oh, wow. it's like quarter past seven, but I wake up incredibly early. Like, my dog is a pain in what the ass, you? so... Uh, oh, nice. <laughs> what are you, down under? Yeah, down under, indeed. As a gallon. Oh, oh nice. I can, really, I can turn off the Bogan accent if you'd like me to. It's, uh... <laughs> <laughs> you could have been anywhere in the world watching right now. I just want to start... <laughs> Start off by apologizing for all of the bad Australian accents I have done on this show. Uh, <laughs> I know that I often I will not be apologizing. New Zealander don't, territory. Don't 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 go back and listen to those. It's yeah. It'll get us in some hot water. No fire away. I'm yeah. proud of all of the accents I've ever done on this show. Yeah, yeah of course. Yeah. I deserve an award for them actually. <laughs> Best accents. Well, I I feel like I need to apologize in advance for my pronunciation of all the French names. Like I, oh yeah, for sure. Ooh, like I was Australian French sounds cool. Awful, <laughs> yeah, never awful. apologize to the French though. <laughs> yeah, that's, I don't that's think right. they deserve. I don't think they deserve it. Only Macron yeah. should do that. Yeah, mm-hmm. <laughs> it's true. Yeah, if they don't hear perfect pronunciation, they probably faint when someone from like a different part region of French says France says a French word. <laughs> yeah, what? It's not perfect Parisian. Oh my god, they pass out. <laughs> But uh, yeah, we, we're so lucky to have you on the show today to talk about your book tonight. It's a world we bury, which I just got done reading for the second time this week. It's a ripper. Uh, you can bang it Thanks. out pretty easily. It's mm. it's for something that references so many thick ass philosophical books. It's really quite light and fun and breezy reading material. So thank you for sending me a PDF copy. <laughs> no, of course. Thanks. It wasn't too painful to read it. Oh, not at all. It it was really interesting to kind of like delve into a subculture that I had checked out a few different times before, um, but had never really developed like a firm familiarity with. And since you're up so early and you're on the show to talk about black metal, that leads me into my first question that's not in the notes. Is black metal a hustle culture? <laughs> Do they have grind set? <laughs> uh, aren't they on their grind? Um... <laughs> maybe i don't know like you can kind of tell a little bit like there there are a lot of musicians that might have upwards of like five bands operating at the same time mm. and none of them release any albums it's just like <laughs> three demos recorded in their bedroom 
but they're still working like 20 hours a day. They are on that grind. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Right. But it'll be like one guy from like rural France whose name is Grimmelsnaft when he's in one band. (laughs) And then when he's by himself, it's like Ultra Guard. And then when he's with this three piece, it's like something else. So I've, I've thought that was so interesting because it mirrors like a lot of other musical subcultures where you make the joke like, oh yeah, all five of those bands have the same drummer. Mm -hmm. But with black metal, it seems like it's more like, oh, all five of those bands are just that same guy. (laughs) (laughs) But he's playing a different instrument. Yeah. um, I think there's a bit in the book where I talk about, uh, what is it, this like group in France where it was like, it was probably upwards of 10 bands, but there were only ever like three musicians operating (laughs) at one time. (laughs) And they were just like, I mean, they played everything like very, in a very mediocre way, but they would just move to different, different bands, like rotate their instruments and, that's it. It's really weird. Like I'm a bad guitarist, so I don't know how you'd feel comfortable also being like a bad drummer and a bad bassist, a bad saxophonist <laughs> or whatever. Seems well, like yeah. uh, that they had well, they would have a built-in fan base once they started their new project, right? Because everybody knew them from the last band, so they would sh- everybody would show up to their new band's show, so they would have a jump start on uh on having people in the crowd for the show because everybody mm-hmm. knew about their last band. That was one of the most interesting things I found in the book uh, is that you mentioned that many times they're starting these projects specifically to run away from recognition. Like Mm. as soon as they get known as one thing, they're like, oh, fuck that. I'm not doing that anymore. Too many people like it. It's awful now. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Okay, wait, before we go on, uh, for people who haven't read the book uh, or heard of the book, (laughs) what is this book about? And what, what, what would what is sort of the main thesis of the thing? <laughs> Good question, Brent. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Um, the, the book in general is about certain like tendencies in black metal. Um, so I sort of, and all the different chapters are aligned to those as distortion, decay, secrecy, coldness, heresy. And I, I could, the basic of these are unique to black metal and they can be connected to like, left wing, whatever, communist philosophy, cultural theory, praxis, occasionally, that kind of stuff. So read the book if you're into any of those things, hopefully. <laughs> Hell yeah. Well, now, so you're saying conceptually the idea of coldness, you're, pull, you're taking some sort of red line and putting it to a specific idea in communism or socialism, uh, or... Like you're separating those ideas into to talk about other political ideas. Um, so in I, if I can make an example, like the the coldness chapter specifically is very much drawn from like Andreas Malm's book Fossil Capital, and that idea of like okay. the history of coal and heat as it's been used in uh, industrial production. Yeah, like that's mm-hmm. just one example. Like the whole book that doesn't gravitate around that sort of thing. Um, but in general, like. The main thrust is that I think a lot of discussion of black metal is kind of very much mired in black metal's like right wing history and like they argue that it's an inherently like right wing genre mm. for legitimate reasons. Like a lot of people in black metal are Nazis, like the racism is very famous. Right. Um, but I kind of, I, and I don't, I don't, how do I put it? I don't disagree with that, but I'm saying that like black <laughs> metal can be used 
as like left-wing cultural theory or connected to left-wing cultural theory, you know, in what I think is like a productive way. Yeah, it's interesting because reading your book, I, I thought about how uh, like a lot of communists will tell you that like um, Carl Schmitt actually, despite being a piece of shit fascist, was a great commentator on how bad liberalism is. It's just when he started <laughs> proposing his own solutions for things, it was like, well, buddy, I don't know about all that. But it's kind of interesting because I think black metal in the, in being so mired in those like deeply reactionary knee jerk kind of politics um it it it's so wildly misidentifies the problem that it's actually quite useful in in turning it around and and accurately identifying the problem hmm. as you see from so many of the like anti-fascist black metal bands that you reference throughout the book yeah and that's been a big thing that's come up in the last I don't know, maybe 10 years or so, like specifically, like conceptually anti-fascist black metal bands. Like I think, I think Dawn Raid's new album comes out today. If I remember correctly, they're like, they're probably the most famous. Um, but you know, there's a whole bunch of them. Like the, again, I reference them all throughout the book. I try, I try not to rely too much on only using specifically like left wing or like anti-fascist black metal bands. Like, as you said, like, you can kind of argue, like, you can use Carl Schmidt like, against himself. I try mm -hmm. to do that with bands like, you know, Burzum, Deathspell Omega, that sort of thing. Bands who are, like, associated with NSBM, even if that's not what their lyrics are about. Right. And I thought it was really interesting when you brought up Deathspell Omega, because they're a band that I just kind of stumbled ass backwards into. Um, and I knew nothing about them. And, you know, since they are an incredibly technical, musically dense, sometimes hard to listen to band, it's basically impossible to tell what they're saying <laughs> in any of those <laughs> yeah. songs. And so I remember reading uh, when I first lit into your book, I was kind of like, uh oh, <laughs> problematic fave right here, because that drummer, <laughs> that drummer rips ass all over that album. What is yeah, that band yeah. is so cool. I did not know they were problematic. I got into them a long time ago. Well, I oh, I was just going to ask, like, what do you think about like the way that black metal and other forms of extreme music have have created a space in which maybe uh, the the problematic stuff is something that is kind of secondary. Like it, it's it's probably integral to what they're doing. But do you think it's do you think it's more of a shock jock thing or do you think it's one of those more like I'm disavowing this as a way of kind of getting out of holding these beliefs, which I actually do. Um, I, I think that the disavow kind of uses like the shock jock angle as an excuse. Mm -hmm. Like, like for example, the Nazi guy from death spell Omega, like as far as I know, he's not in the band anymore, but he was never officially a confirmed member of this stuff. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, but Mika Asper is that guy. And he's also done like non-metal bands that have done lyrics about like, like I bought, I like rape and erotica and all this kind of stuff. Um, and I think the shock, there is definitely like a shock jock angle in that dumb, like vulgar adolescent way. Like in my day job, I work with a lot of teenagers and like mm -hmm. they're horrible. <laughs> like <laughs> your, your average white teenager, um, white teenage boy specifically says shit that's about as horrible as you could expect. Um, but like they also use that ex that as an excuse to kind of disavow their genuinely held beliefs in some cases. Like you've got to kind of look at this on a case by case basis. I think like if a band like at the start of the book, I reference um 
what the fuck are they called? Spear of Longinus? That's right. Mm-hmm. Um, and they say, oh, you know, we have nothing to do with politics. Our music isn't political. But every single one of their albums and every single piece of their artwork references like Nazism or some like esoteric fascism mm-hmm. in one way or another. And you think, okay, this is far beyond like shock jock value. Whereas a band like, I don't know, like Bolza, for example, who I think are Australian, but they did a tour in Australia recently um, that kind of got shit canned because they're pricks. But that might be an example where you could look at them and be like, okay, you're like drawing on this dumb Nazi shit for like shock jock value. Um, but you know, you, you might not genuinely hold these beliefs. I don't, it's, it's always kind of hard to tell as well. So it's sort of an aesthetic choice in the way that like seventies, eighties punk bands would wear swastika armbands, but, uh, it's really more of a, you know, it when you see it, because if they're letting that kind of bleed over into their lifestyle and their sincerely held beliefs, it gets, uh, it gets a little bit, uh, prickly. Yeah, of course. And what they say in interviews as well, mm-hmm. like, um, mm-hmm. the Australian band, like Destroyer 666, like, okay, their albums are like relatively non-political, but the main guy, like KK Warslut, um, has gone in interviews to argue for like the basically like white supremacy and white nationalism. So. I'm sorry, Bryn. You go ahead. Yeah. No, I was just I'm glad they say, cut that guy out of Animal Crossing. KK Slider is a much better choice. <laughs> I was just going to say, I think that there was a period of time in the early 90s to, I think, the 2000s where there was a legitimate, I think, I think, earnest and legitimate type of extremist art that wasn't exclusive to black metal that was sort of looking at fascist aesthetics and using fascist or quote unquote authoritarian um, aesthetics, whatever that means, um, and using it to make commentary for performance art purposes for lots of different things. For example, bands that aren't black metal, such as Death in June, Leibach, who have at least had their outspoken very far left slash communist beliefs uh, at one point in their histories. But, you know, like Death in June famously uses a Totenkopf skull uh, Nazi insignia as their uh, a slightly changed one. But, you know, using Nazi insignias and symbols to say something else, supposedly. Um, and I think a lot of people got confused by that in the 90s and people... I think it's also because like America didn't see itself as a fascist nation and neither did a, the, the, neither did Britain. Um, and I think because of that sort of like blurring lines of what certain artists were trying to say, a lot of obviously real Nazis kind of came into, um, into those circles with people like non uh, Boyd Rice and you know just idiots who are just fascists like oh I can get away with anything in these circles or whatever so I I, I think that there is on one hand like something I'm not necessarily justifying that behavior but I think there were people with interesting things to say mm-hmm. that got lumped in with actual fascists who are trying to push uh, a narrative and a social structure around like bigotry and and exclusion 
And then we're kind of left in this middle place where, or now that, you know, history has marched forward, we have this sort of like, well, you have to make a choice culturally and aesthetically uh, of being for it or against it. You can't like make, you know, make some point or whatever, you know, you can't, you have to be very clear about what you actually believe. And I think, I don't know. I think that's both good and bad. Um, well, yeah, I, I was going to ask, do you think that unrelenting commitment to the bit is what separates out black metal from other styles of extreme music <laughs> or art that might also encounter these kinds of like political quandaries? Like you see stoner metal musicians like Matt Pike, who incorporate various random conspiracy theories and weird old ancient anti-Semitic stuff you've never heard of, but doesn't seem to have a coherent anything going on. It's just kind of a random mishmash or like Cannibal Corpse where it's like, yeah, I have tons of guns and skulls, but it's like it's all very surface level. Do you think black metal offers something that's a little bit more substantial? And, and maybe that's why you're drawn to it as a, as something having potential for the left. I think so. Honestly, like there is a certain level of total commitment to it that you don't really get with other genres of music. Um, like I like, I like to make distinctions between black metal and death metal quite a bit because they're often lumped together, but they're very different genres, but like death metal, you know, again, like you said, they'll sing about or they'll scream about like, you know, violence and rape and murder and eating children, whatever the fuck. But then they'll they'll usually be quite nice people if you actually talk to them. Like I I met Luke LeMay very briefly after like a Gorgut's gig. Um and he's like, you know, he's like a yeah, he's he's a cool dude. But he's extremely nice. But you know, his lyrics are like horrific and his growling is like insane. Um Whereas I think black metal, there is a tens tendency, like you would not really meet black metal musicians after a show. <laughs> uh, <laughs> because, you know, they would just be like pricks and not talk to you, I guess, is the assumption. Like they do, they do commit more fully in a way. Um, and in terms of the political engagement with that, I do agree with that. Like his politics is a, com is like uh, a commitment at the end of the day. And you need to be committed in a relatively full way, no matter what you're doing, you can't like sidle off this part of your identity. Like even, I mean, it's obviously difficult because especially in America, but in Australia as well, there is kind of a new like red scare thing currently going on. Um, mm. so, you know, like you might, you might hide that part of your identity for the sake of not being like ostracized by society, I suppose. Um, yeah, no, John, I think, yeah, I think the commitment to the bit, <laughs> um, yeah, it, it could, it could have a crossover with politics. Yeah. It's a good point. Well, I mean, it makes me wonder because politics is fundamentally an evangelical exercise. Like you're trying to accomplish <laughs> things, but you're also trying to get people to agree with you. And I feel like black metal does this interesting thing in this, in the world we live in now where everybody's trying to figure out exactly what level of irony you're on. When you say something, <laughs> they're like, wait, are you critiquing something or are you secretly double agreeing with it? Or are you secretly triple backflip critiquing <laughs> it through your sardonic agreement? And it's like black metal doesn't have to bother with any of that shit. When they say like, I'm going to go out into the snow and die under a tree. They mean it. They mean li they're literally going to go die under a tree. <laughs> and even if you think that's a stupid thing, to do you have to kind of respect it like <laughs> yeah and that has happened as well in the past yeah. 
Or like, you know, like Varg singing about burning churches in the 90s. Like, and then he went on to actually do that. So mm-hmm. it's, yeah. <laughs> it's interesting. I, I also wonder, because the book is broken up really beautifully into those five pieces that you mentioned, distortion, decay, secrecy, coldness, and heresy. And I have two questions, one of which, which one's your favorite? And two, uh, <laughs> are there any other attributes of black metal that you think set it apart from other types of extreme music or extreme art? Um, the one that I was thinking of that's kind of encompassed by what you were talking about, but is is maybe like it's just uh, allergic reaction to commercialization. It's like they hate success. And I think that's a really beautiful attitude. <laughs> I agree. Um, my favorite is probably secrecy, I think. And I think that's probably my favorite chapter at this point. Um and I do have to credit my partner in no small degree for like, cause she read a very early draft of the chapter and was like, no, this is bad. You have to change all of this. I'm like, okay. <laughs> and then I sort of went away and did that. And it turned out really well, I think. What, what was the critique? Oh, I was just like first draft stuff. Like I, it's difficult to say all at once, but like she called it basically incomprehensible, like more so than the rest <laughs> of the book. Like, okay, yeah. fair enough. I mean, you could make the argument that. Like there's a point in that if it's a chapter about secrecy or whatever. Mm-hmm. But um, I'm trying to be in character and and be like a black metal musician. Yeah, these these are like my screen exactly, lyrics. Yeah. No one can understand. I'm screaming it, yeah. this chapter. I'm method writing. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's all in a language that I personally made up. Um, <laughs> no. Um, and I think and the reason I chose those five is because I think they're pretty crucial to like black metal specifically. Obviously, there's like counterexamples and stuff. Um, but, uh, very early on when I was sort of thinking about the book, I wanted to kind of get rid of death metal and sludge metal and like the heavy side of thrash out of the picture. Um, I quite like those genres, but I don't really know anything about them. (laughs) Like (laughs) I, you know, death metal, like a little bit sludge metal, especially the new stuff. I like quite a lot. Um, but I wanted to write about black metal specifically because like that's really the only metal genre that I still listen to quite a bit. Mm. Um, so like, and like I said, obviously there are counter examples like death metal uses distortion quite a bit, obviously, but there is a certain clarity that you have to have in death metal because it's so complicated that they really want to show you everything that they're doing was black metal. Like the production is shit on purpose. Famous mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. black metal. The only genre where every note is a ghost note. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. And like some bands, like, um, I talked to a musician in the band Galassenheit, who I mentioned in the last chapter quite a bit. And she told me that she doesn't actually play guitar. Like her, um, her instrument is just like a computer synthesizer that's distorted so thoroughly that it kind of sounds like a guitar. Like, okay, that's interesting. Whereas like in most other genres, that would be considered like a negative because it means you're not playing it properly or whatever. But in black metal, that's just like black metal dungeon synth kind of shit. Yeah, it's like whatever gets it on uh, in, into the recording in whatever manner it can get there. Mm-hmm. I really liked the comparison that you made between black metal and extra tone music uh, in terms of taking something like tremolo picking or another kind of like really, really vigorous repeating of the same thing really quickly in succession and how like the rhythm can become a frequency, but also like 
the the rhythm and the frequency like there's there's a blurring of that distinction and you're left with something that's that's moving so fast it's standing still and mm. i i wonder like um do you think there are any other genres that do that really well cuz i to me the antithesis of that is like stoner metal where they're like let's slow it down so much or doom metal that it's like one note can be a third of the song whereas black metal is like a third of the song should be a billion notes that all sound like the same note yeah i don't i don't know any other genre of music that does that like it i mean like extra tone it's probably some like electronic genre that i have no familiarity with like um I don't know, like, I think, is it Nightcore? Like, that kind of meme music that people yeah. <laughs> have that's, like, super fast. But, no, I don't know any other genre of music that does that. Because black metal, like, it kind of started out with a bunch of, like, 14-year-olds who couldn't play their instruments properly. Like, that whole may that whole mayhem, Darth Throne, Burzum scene in the 90s, that they were all, like, quite poor musicians. Um, but you kind of take that, like, punk attitude and you turn it into, like, okay, like, we, you know, we can play this. And like, this is the kind of music that we want to play, whatever. We want to play like tremolo picking for an entire song. Like, um, as I mentioned in the book as well, like the reason why, I, part of the reason why Transylvanian Hunger is so famous by Dark Throne is because it's like the first song that you learn how to play as a black metal musician. Because it's got like three <laughs> riffs maximum. It's the same tempo, same tremolo picking for the whole song. Like, there's it's an smoke on the water, basically. <laughs> it is smoke on the water for, for black metal, yes. I mean, that's pretty fucking cool. I, I like that black metal has its own like entry level guitar tab, like guitar dash tabs.com, Transylvanian hunger. <laughs> Hell yeah, I'm going to be a black metal musician. Um, no, absolutely. So, what is your experience with the uh, with black metal in terms of like how did you get into it? Because, like, for me, I didn't really, I liked regular metal i guess a little bit in high school but then in like college i found wolves in the throne room nice and that was my entry point in it It was like u.s black metal and like the sort of like artsy stuff and then when i moved to new york i lived across the street from a place called the acre on where like liturgy played their first show and kralis was playing there all the time Love so like the brooklyn artsy ambient black metal was like my <laughs> intro i was going to those shows all the time um I'm not super familiar with like the European stuff and you're on the other side of the world. So what's your, what was your intro? Boy, I kind of no. that's, I mean, the kind of American artsy stuff, as you call it, is probably my favorite now, but I, oh, all right, cool. Me too. <laughs> I, I didn't grow up in an environment where you could see black metal shows. Like I grew up in like regional Australia, like there are, there are no shows going on. Damn. Um, I mean, I don't know. It might have changed now, but I, this is a funny story. Do any of you know, like GameSpot, like the video game website from like 20, mm -hmm. yes. I don't know, 2010 ish? Sure, yeah. yeah. <laughs> they used to have like forums. And I don't know how this happened, but I, I had an account on those forums and there was specifically like a sub forum about like metal music. And sure. I, on GameSpot? No way. Hell yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Gamers yeah. listening to music? That I mean, more likely than you think. <laughs> <laughs> Wolves in my throne room? <laughs> um, yeah, so I, I fell in with like the metal subgenre there. 
And like you said, like, I listen pretty much exclusively to like what they call dad metal in like a derogatory sort of way. It's like, you know, heavy metal, power metal, like the, the lamer side of thrash, like Metallica, Megadeth, like very, you know, yeah, yeah. basic stuff. Um, and then, how do I yeah, interneal? Yes. <laughs> and partly because of that, like dad metal association and like lurking on the metal archives forums, I, started listening to black metal through like the symphonic stuff because i feel like that resonated with like my dumb like dungeons and dragons power metal kind of listening sure so, like, oh, yeah. rap- from rhapsody of fire to like emperor for example mm-hmm. like okay. the vocals are really the only bit that like take a little bit of getting used to you start listening to Hammerfall, and before you know it, you're listening to Iced Earth, and then pretty soon it's like it's Celtic Uh-oh. Frost. I think I actually, yeah, Celtic Frost. And then it's like, what's this Philosophem album? Like, <laughs> uh oh, yeah, yeah, exactly. It was like, um, you know, Blind Guardian. But then I think actually Iced Earth may have been one of like the kind of points in like the tunnel towards black metal. Um, uh, if I'm not mistaken, though, the guy from Iced Earth is like really fucking problematic too. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah it was. He was at January 6th, right? That whole thing. That's so. Oh, that's funny. right. That's oh, right. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Never Base. ask a woman her age or what a black metal musician was doing on January 6th. <laughs> oh, the black metal guys that had to leave oh, the man. house first. I wish I was at January 6th. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, then. Um, yeah i sort of my first black metal bands like i almost never listen to now strangely it's like emperor Alcazanth, dimu borga like the stuff that's usually derided as like relatively on the mainstream side but like that was how i got into it nice so uh so bill you mentioned earlier that uh you teach and that's sort of your main thing right uh, i'm a i'm a teacher's aide at a high school not quite and- teaching do, does that sort of intersect in any cool ways with uh the musical side of your life or the writing that you do. Yeah. Do they let you wear corpse paint there? <laughs> <laughs> are, are you, are you bringing in uh, instead of like wheeling a TV into the room on a, you know, a slow day, do you wheel in like uh, wheeling you in know, a, TV. a record player or something? Yeah. in an ancient boom box and you play a, <laughs> a tape, a cassette tape for them. Yeah. I'll put in like a smashed Burzum tape or something. Um, (laughs) no not really and honestly i try not to allow that to happen because Mm -hmm. i like Mm -hmm. i the last thing i would want is for them to like google me and be like oh this guy's a communist (laughs) (laughs) Um, understandable yeah not looked on too highly in australia i i assume you mentioned there's a a bit of a red scare going on down under uh do you want to maybe down under give us some some perspective as uh filthy americans of what it's like down there yeah, explain it to me in hot dog terms. <laughs> sure. You translate so, um, it to burger. <laughs> so you have this burger, right? And this burger, no. Um, it's, I, I mean, I can only really vouch for it in like the side of the educational angle, I guess. But mm-hmm. like the whole American like lives of TikTok bullshit about, uh, you know, the, the politics of teachers or teachers having like lives outside of the classroom. Um, that has been that like in general, that's been a thing in Australia for a while where like, you know, teachers personal lives will be sort of dug into for the sake of trying to get them sacked or fired basically. Um, weird. Yeah, I know. Crazy. Um, and I think it's especially getting, it's getting bigger, I think. And like you have, 
because uh, the students are also influenced by all this shit from America because Australia doesn't really produce any culture anymore. So the thing that the students are really into is like American culture. And now, unfortunately, mm-hmm. unfortunately, like mm-hmm. libs of TikTok has become part of that. So, mm-hmm. you know, students will like really hammer in on like, you know, anti-queer stuff. Because, like, you know, they're, like, 13 and they have no friends and, like, that's where their personality is just going to (laughs) go. Yeah, because they heard on the internet (laughs) that it's cool to have bad opinions. Um, Yeah. (laughs) It it reminds me of, like, why why secrecy in something like black metal is so important, though, and um, how black metal stands in contrast to what you describe in your book as a lot of forms of, like, confessional art, which has become, like, a very dominant form of, like, lyricism in the modern Mm -hmm. world, where it's, like, if you write a song, you write a book, it's supposed to be about like your feelings and what happens to you and the journey that you went on with your friends. But black metal does something really opposite where it's just like, actually I wrote a 17 minute song about how cold the forest is (laughs) (laughs) and that's it, man. And I think there's something really valuable in that when you live in a world where maybe you do have to occasionally hide that you're a communist or hide that you have certain, you know, uh, attractions to certain people or have a certain identity or whatever. Like it, it, it gives you the tools to be like, actually, isn't it crazy how cold snow is? Snow is the <laughs> coldest shit so in the world. Fucking cold, dude. <laughs> He's just talking about the weather. It's just, yeah. Mm-hmm. Fuck, it's cold today. And like, that's it. So, so you're, you're saying they're literally just like boomer neighbors kicking up to each other's driveways in Norway. Like, yeah, it's real cold. Yeah, it's real cold. Can you play guitar real fast? Real fast. <laughs> yeah, I, I think, yeah, the, I, I'm, I'm not a huge fan of the whole confessional art thing, I guess, is like the point of that. But I, and with the book as well, I kind of have to like be semi-secretive about it because like, I mean, uh, how do I put it? Australia isn't a particularly intellectual country. I don't know if you're aware of that, but mm. Uh, mm. we love drinking and we love our sport. But like that's it. a little bit like, like Wisconsin. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and the cheese, of course. Yeah. yeah. So when I like try to talk to people about the book, or if they ask me about the book, I have to be like, okay, like what level of honesty should I operate on when I talk to these people? <laughs> we just like call it hiding all- your power level. <laughs> yes yes because we talk to older people it's like oh you know it's like about heavy metal music and like culture like kind of stuff and like they're happy with that to be like oh okay have a nice day oh, and that's i it. love eddie from the iron maiden albums <laughs> <laughs> i drew eddie in 1971 yeah, um, yeah. heavy metal i love def leopard <laughs> that's like judas priest right and black I- sabbath <laughs> <laughs> I saw yeah. Anthrax in 1985. It was lit, fam. <laughs> I opened for Mastodon in high school. <laughs> um, honestly, like with young people, it's pretty bad as well, where it's like they, because everything they've heard about communism, again, is from fucking libs of TikTok mm-hmm. or, an, or like a, is some. Why insane. is libs of TikTok like CNN in Australia? What the <laughs> hell is going on? It's just my go to example, but it could be like. Yeah, I mean, because Australia is very negative towards China as well. Mm-hmm. And like, I don't know if this is true in America, but in Australia, like they very rarely just say China as a country or they refer to China mm-hmm. as the government. Like they'll almost always say the Chinese Communist Party because it's like you have to put that in. That that has to be part of like yeah. the advertising copy. They're def- yeah, they're definitely whipping up the um, saber rattling against China 
here yeah. as well. Yeah, World um, War Two. If you mm-hmm. if you do, you're you're totally right. If you do uh, listen for that, uh, every major media organization here as well is totally on message about the Chinese mm-hmm. the quote unquote Chinese Communist Party, uh, especially yeah. when they're when they're talking about something where the the governance of China isn't even involved, like yeah. uh, you know private <laughs> you know uh, business dealings. They'll specifically mention because it is, yeah, it's, uh, I think all over it's being used to whip up fears against China. Well, it also sounds like in Australia, they're kind of like omitting the parentheses after where they say the party that is temporarily in charge of mainland China until we return it to the Kuomintang and resurrect Chiang Kai-shek <laughs> and give him a battle mech. Exactly. <laughs> the, the, the cast of Shen Yun are going to take over the Chinese government and until that happens. Yeah. <laughs> That's interesting, though, that like you're you're experiencing like um, maybe not such a reassuring response from young people. Uh, have there who, who has been the most positively receptive of your book and why is it obscure Internet leftist podcasters? Great <laughs> <laughs> uh, question. I mean, as I in part, I wrote it to like combine my true personal interests. And unfortunately, it's not exactly a massive market for that sort of thing. So, you know, it's going to appeal to people who are on Twitter too much because I wrote it and I'm on Twitter too much is really the... I'm on Twitter just the right amount. (laughs) Nice job. (laughs) No one should use Twitter more or less than me personally. How do you think... <laughs> How do you think Euronymous would have used Twitter? Would he have been a resistance leader? <laughs> actually, if I remember correctly, he was in the Communist Party of Norway, like a Marxist-Leninist party in Norway for a little bit. Um, but it was purely for like commitment to the bit, right? So mm-hmm. he would talk about how like mm-hmm. genocide is good, but from a communist perspective. So I guess he would have been like a Caleb Morpin guy, maybe. He seems like a, he oh, seems no. a patriotic socialist. Like he would have wore the Abraham Lincoln hat. Honestly, yes. So, so this like, is an interesting question. <laughs> oh, no, go ahead, Brent. So this is an interesting question. Sorry to ruin your bit, but I, I mean this this bit is making me think about another another question I had is like black metal is as far as I can tell for me almost entirely an aesthetic pursuit like very little of it seems to really be about changing anyone's mind and we talked about how politics is like in a like if you're really doing politics and not just posting like you're you're it's an evangelical mission you know you're trying to change people's minds to get people to believe in something to act on the thing that they believe in whereas most music isn't really interested in that concept. Um, But black metal, interestingly, like you were saying, does kind of cause people to behave certain ways um, and has historically. Um, So do you think that's still possible? Is there anybody, I guess, do you think that's possible for music in general um, as something to influence people's beliefs or, or behaviors or political stances in general. Yeah, well, Dua Lipa's new album make me believe in Greater Albania. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I do now. Um, I yeah, I hope so. To uh, to both. Um, <laughs> I think, uh, it's difficult because black metal. Like, I don't think 
if, if people usually don't get into like NSBM, like Nazi black metal, because they love the Nazism angle. Like they get into it because they like the riffs. Like I, when I first started listening to black metal and I was like unaware of the stuff, like a lot of the bands I listen to, you look back at them and like, oh no, like they're all <laughs> like um, the Ukrainian band Drunka, for example. Yeah, um, classic. They're, yeah. Uh, basically any black metal band from Ukraine that isn't White Ward, who are like a new band who are pretty good, but like all of those other ones are like fucked. And like, um, what is it? And again, like Pest Noir, uh, for example, like Mm -hmm. their early stuff, more about like weirdo French nationalism, but over time it's gone far more into like the white nationalist angle. And I think like Mm -hmm. the Pest Noir have played like the big NSBM festival in uh, Kiev or in Ukraine. Um, the, I, I, I think you, I, and I think I, it honestly could work as well with like left-wing black metal as well. Cause I'm, I'm in like two different black metal Facebook groups. And one of them is like normie, you know, it's purely about like music stuff. And the other is about specifically like communist black metal. Um, and the mainstream one, they will often talk like quite positively about bands like Dawn Raid or Wolves in the Throne Room or Liturgy and not know that like those bands are all socialist of various stripes. So I think like music's very subjective element, you can kind of use that to introduce people to political ideas. Interesting. There's, there's, a, there's a twin emergence of the right and the left out of black metal. And obviously it's weighted much more heavily to one side. And that reminds me of like early internet culture in a lot of ways. It might also be the fact that they both took place at various times during the 90s. And when I listen to somebody like, you know, uh, Burzum or whatever, I can't help but get that kind of 4chan, new grounds kind of feeling in my bones. Do you think that there was a <laughs> A, a cultural overlap between early internet culture and and black metal guys, or do you think that the black metal guys would probably have looked down their nose at posting on forums? Um, I don't know. It's hard to say. Like, I I think in part, like black metal guys may have gone like full live in the woods kind of strats. I guess, or I don't know. If, I don't know if they even fucking had like proper internet or whatever in Norway mm-hmm. at that time. <laughs> um. <laughs> But I don't know, like, I think they, I think they can, can be connected and that they're very, they're both very concerned about like insularity and like being, uh, I know, sticking purely to like their own group of extreme mm-hmm. weirdos with their own like specific ideas that are incomprehensible to the rest of the population. It's interesting. So do you think some of these these traits that are shared between the two communities might just be emergent traits that happen whenever your community is mostly white guys in basements? (laughs) I think so. Yeah, (laughs) I think I don't know. I think it's like any community and it's I don't want to get too normy about the Internet or whatever, but I think it does happen with the Internet. It does kind of accelerate these like highly insular communities that kind of stick to themselves and don't really have much of an effect on the world at large like black metal wants to which i i think can be admirable um depending on which way you want to go with it obviously right how much reddit gold does varg have <laughs> <laughs> i think i think euronymous actually would have a lot of reddit reddit gold 
like <laughs> the anti-communist communism. Like I feel like that's that that's getting all of your broad uh, angles. Well, um, I wanted to quickly read one of my favorite parts of the book that uh, I came across, and this is specifically having to do with misrecognition and its usefulness as a strategic tactic. And I thought there was a whole thread that kind of ran through the book that was always kind of darting back and forth across this line of like, okay, this is aesthetic. This is more of a strategy. This is more of a, a cultural epiphenomena. This is more of something that's intentional. And so the quote is this. It's, it's quote, misrecognition is often understood as a form of ontological violence, distorting the subject by compelling them to internalize a monstrous identity, like Caliban from Shakespeare's <laughs> The Tempest. But being underestimated can be a valuable strategic measure. Think of the animal kingdom, where predators and prey alike use misrecognition to their advantage. Crocodiles look like tree stumps when they float along rivers, and arctic owls blend in with a mottled snowy landscape. Members of the ruling class have learned this lesson. Elon Musk presents himself as a cool tech billionaire who will save the world and Bill Gates <laughs> camouflages himself as a nice philanthropic grandfather figure rather than a profiteer seeking to privatize education from the U.S. to Ethiopia. Our opponents use misrecognition to their advantage, and so should we when given the opportunity. End quote. I just want to say, I thought that was really, really enlightening, and I wanted to ask what forms of misrecognition do you think are useful for the left in the modern day? Uh, and also, does changing my display name on Twitter count? <laughs> um i think i think being being misrecognized as like a a, a non-political person can be useful in certain contexts basically like i've already spoken to uh, i've already spoken about what it's like in education or with the kind of red scare that's happening no doubt in other places but as we've said like the us and australia um i think because uh, I think I, I think it's easy to make the argument that like it's a bit too like that passage and that kind of broader subchapter are like a bit too anarchist for a lot of people. Um, but as I say in that, like the Communist Manifesto basically starts with the same thing of like allowing yourself to be like underestimated for strategic purpose. And I think I, I think there is a value to be had in like not giving your opponents all the information about you that they could possibly have. Um, one thing about that that is quite funny. I'm glad you like that passage because I wrote I would have written that bit <clears throat> in like September of 2021 or something like that. And like when we were going through editing, the editor at Repeater specifically pointed out the Elon Musk thing and was like, "Hey, do you want to change that? Like a lot has changed since then. <laughs> like <laughs> he doesn't really he doesn't really do the electric batteries or any of that shit anymore. It's purely like shit posting Reddit on uh, yeah and owning Twitter basically. Well, I um, think that's what I liked about it so much is because Elon is the perfect figure where his like except for all but the most diehard Elon fans, his veneer of seeming like a serious, cool, fun, interesting part of the future has completely disappeared. And everyone now kind of like has stopped misrecognizing him. And I think that's what makes it so valuable because like he's lost a lot of his sway. People don't like fall over themselves to repeat what he said online anymore. Cause as you say, it's just his best of Reddit folder. He's tweeting on his own website. <laughs> yeah. And like Bill Gates, like I hope that changes as well, frankly. Um, <clears throat> and like the, 
again, Bill Gates does uh, like he gets he gets away with a lot because he does present himself as like a philanthropist rather than yeah. an education privateer or like again someone responsible for like increasing the price of COVID vaccines and all this stuff. I, I think also maybe like familiarity with subcultures that revel in this kind of misrecognition can give you something like a really good like bullshit detector where mm. you you start to be able to discern, okay, this person is just being campy. This person is just being sarcastic. But this guy, this is a real actual Nazi or capitalist or, mm. you know, whatever the, the, the thing you're trying to <laughs> suss out is. Yeah. No, absolutely. And like, again, like we said, like very early on, black metal is full of people like black metal is full of Nazis who want to be misrecognized as like 4chan shit posters, more or mm -hmm. less. Yeah, that was so interesting. And then another one of the things you talked about was all of the different black circles. And we, this kind of brings the discussion full circle because we talked about like 10 bands with three fucking members between them kind of all operating out of a particular region. And I remember when I read that, I, I kind of was thinking about like cell anarchism and how like these insurrectionary groups would would meet in secret sometimes members of one group wouldn't even know who the members of another related group were they had to pass messages between each other in code and stuff like that and it feels like that kind of oblique signaling is also something that black metal has very much uh developed within its own subculture and i also wanted to ask how do you think that like the the kind of cult like ritual behavior in black metal plays a role because there's all these emergent features of like what's aesthetically appropriate for black metal or like what the black metalers are interested in doing and i wonder like do you think there's a a, a pathological or almost kind of like religious brain pathway that's getting rewarded there when these guys engage in what they see as appropriate um i don't know i think like my knee-jerk response is to kind of dismiss the religious element but i don't think that's I don't think that's useful. Like the religious element can be productive for like for producing like very committed people, so long as it doesn't uh kind of fall into that uh the, the thing that's like mired religions historically in like, you know, like uh like oppressive social kind of institutions or this kind of devoted belief that like someone else is gonna accomplish your ends for you. Um so something like I don't know. I I I wanted to include like a longer bit about George Bataille's group, like Asafe, or however that's pronounced. It's French, um, but their group was more or less like an anti-fascist secret society in the I think it was the thirties in France. Um, I think there is like a resonance there in that, like okay, like your group, your your black metal group, like operates effectively as a secret society. Operating as a secret society lets you get away with a lot, but yeah, just don't get mired in like a cult-like element where like a clear leader emerges and requires you to sacrifice yourself for like their ends, more or less. Okay, so I should take down the liturgy shrine in my closet. <laughs> <laughs> yes, well, I, I think it's I think it's pretty tough because, I mean, me personally, I think that any anything that you were going to do that you could die from basically requires a, a religious fervor, a belief, right? Like you need to believe that what you're will die for is valuable. Mm. And if you 
there's no real way of describing that kind of belief. I don't, I mean, like, I guess if it's not a religious belief, then it, it's not anything, I guess. Um, but like in a, in a dogmatic sense. So I, I, I don't know. I think that while cults are definitely, you know, usually based around one person, just sort of controlling a bunch of people. I mean, like any sort of successful movement, like isn't necessarily entirely like from the people up, like leaders are usually appropriate in, in any sort of communist uprising. Um, but I don't know. I, I think, I think in music, that's where I get the sort of like danger from, like, if there's nothing to actually do except like please a person <laughs> or a band mm. or whatever, you know, like that is where the, that kind of dangerous stuff can come from. Um, but I guess my question would be like, what behaviors can music or, or, or a, a music culture helpfully confer onto a group of people? Well, I think, I think there's like a certain communitarian aspect to all of it. You're, you're able to like make connections at gigs, for example, like no matter where they are, mm. right? If you're like, there are times when I've been going to gigs by myself and you can just start talking to people, right? Cause you know, you have at least one thing in common, right? That you both like the band and from there you can move on to something else. Um, and it, I would argue that it's, it's the same way with a lot of like socialist organizations. Like you can start talking to people automatically because you have one thing in common, which are those, which are those politics, right? You can come from one tendency or another, like who cares? But you know that the thing that connects you at the end of the day is a like, is a desire for like a communist future or a socialist future or something like that. So I think music. Not uh, not to get too hippie about it or whatever, but I think that community aspect is good because it allows you to make connections to people. And like you don't want to do kind of entryism where it's like you enter, you know, a black metal community specifically to talk about Trotskyism and sell newspapers. But <laughs> it, it lets you it lets you talk about it lets you talk about politics to people who might not otherwise be interested in that. Right. Well, and I also thought um, near the end of your book, you did a really good job of highlighting how the terrain is not uniform. Like there's a big difference between bands that rebel against whatever their dominant religion or, or cultural socioeconomic system is by simply just like taking the opposite stance. Like you like God, I like Satan. You like capitalism, I like communism, mm. but not in like a structured way. Like, as you say, like Euronymous just kind of like joining that communist party because he thought it would be the cool hip thing to do compared yeah. to bands that offer something in terms of like what we can go to afterwards. I don't remember the names of the bands, but you highlighted two, um, one from Saudi Arabia and one from another predominantly Muslim country. Iran. That Yeah. So yeah, that's Al Namrud from Saudi Arabia and Akvan from Iran. But sorry, you continue. Yeah, well, I just thought it was interesting how you talked about how like one is very much just obsessed with like tearing down, tearing down the um, the system that they feel is oppressing them, and the other one was like, okay, yes, we have to tear it down, but it's it, we're, we also have to be 
thinking about like, what are we going to install in its place? What are the openings that this kind of destruction provides? And I think that's a really interesting way to think about black metal because people do see it as like kind of a dead end, pure nihilism, um, kind of musical mm. philosophy but i think there's that door open at the end where you can kind of enter into the absurdist realm of it's like okay well if i hate all of this stuff then what am i saying what am i constructing you know mm-hmm. yeah and like the the kind of hatred for like everything about the world and the kind of pure like negative desire to like destroy everything it kind of implies that like you want something else and i think that's why black metal is so often like extreme politically like either right or left is because you both acknowledge that modernity as like a project has like liberal modernism has failed and so something else needs to be constructed whether that's communism or fascism or whatever the fuck like even even and if a black metal band are like normie political centrists like uh uada from america <laughs> <laughs> yes. Then you won't really you won't really talk about politics. You pretend to be like above it. Oh, interesting. So it's like um the the old world is dying and the new world struggles to be born. Now is the time of blast beats and tremolo picking. It is. Yeah, now is the time <laughs> of the riffs. <laughs> yeah well uh before we close out the conversation is there anything that we missed or or any any kind of extra notes that you just want to throw on here for the listeners who might not be super familiar with black metal or or might be super familiar however you want to approach it it's up to you um i don't know i guess i just want to say that like obviously i i don't aim to put like a final stamp or whatever on black metal i don't think that's possible like the book doesn't have a conclusion chapter for a reason um and at the end of the day like i'm like a white guy obviously i'm going to come to this from a certain angle like uh the book black metal rainbows that's been published pretty recently is a really good example of how you could do something completely different with black metal like um they take a very like a, a very specifically queer reading of it whereas my reading of it is more influenced by like marxism in like a very broad marxism sure so yeah and uh black metal's changing all the time obviously like i can't really tell where it's going to go but like it's very different from how it was in the 90s so the book may be out of date very quickly when black metal becomes something <laughs> completely different wow so like when prudon said i dream of a society that will one day guillotine me as a conservative <laughs> that was actually Euronymous <laughs> who said that yes <laughs> Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show and talking about your book. Uh, it was a real pleasure to have you on. It was a real pleasure to read. I encourage anybody who has an interest in any of these topics, even if you just want to read a book that has some Zizek quotes in it, to please check it out. Um, it was it was really <laughs> rewarding. Sign me up. I'm reading books just for one quote. <laughs> <laughs> All right, flip it through. Boring, boring, boring. Ah, there it is. Ah, Zizek. My favorite. Let me just do the little voice. The Zizek shirt. You won't even have to read a lot of it. It's no, like on page but, fucking five or something. <laughs> yeah, come for the Zizek and, and stay for the uh, endless discussion about how speed is actually how you achieve stillness, which was my favorite part of the book. Mm. But um, <laughs> mm. yeah, so I guess that was your, your BP Bledis. Thank you all so much for listening. Thank you so much for uh, checking us out on Patreon, even though this is a public episode, so everybody's going to have access to this wonderful information. Um, you can check out my other show, Work Stoppage, which is about labor news and union stuff. Bryn's other show, Generation Loss, which is about movies and TV stuff. Todd's shop, Doomer.shop, which has a lot of cool stuff in it. And Bill, is there anything you'd like to plug? Um, 
Yeah, buy my book, please. Hell yeah. <laughs> it's not a massive seller, but wherever wherever <laughs> books are sold, I guess. Do you, have an, do you have an online that people should follow? Um, yeah, you can follow me at Twitter on Young Euronymous. Um, <laughs> nice, dude. <laughs> um, I had to change it out from my real name for, yeah, for very obvious reasons. So Obviously. Yeah, um, yeah, buy my book. Listen to Black Metal because it's mostly cool. That's it. Hell yeah. I'm feeling it. Well, after that excellent vibe check, we're going to get out of here. We love you all. Stay high. Goodbye. Bye. Bye. Hell yeah. Be upon you. Bye.